I'm going to talk tonight another passage where we're going to see this amazing picture, beautiful picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. But this actually is one of the, the, it's really one of the ugliest pictures in the Bible that rightly understood is one of the most beautiful because it involves Joshua, the high priest, covered in excrement. That's what the Hebrew literally says, covered in excrement, ministering before the Lord. And I was thinking as we're singing that last song, if you don't understand the holiness of God, very little of the Bible will make sense. If you think that it's God's job to serve us, very little of the Bible will make sense. Like if you don't understand what it means that God is holy and pure, then it won't shock you like it should when Joshua, the high priest, is standing before him in filthy clothes. Now, as we get into this, I'm going to explain more the depths of what that means. Um, But I do think if holiness is a harder issue to kind of get our hearts around in our day and age, and I do think it is. There was a guy, even like about 30, 40 years ago, um, a Bible translator, a guy named J.B. Phillips, wrote a great little paperback book called Your God is Too Small. And, And I still think that that's the issue. If there's a continuum from thinking of God as our buddy to thinking of God as holy and transcendent and, you know, where you would think about our day and age, we're definitely way down here with God as our buddy. Now, there have been periods in the history of the church that would have been all over here. And the idea that God um, would welcome people into his family and adopt them to be his children, um, which we're going to talk about that in an upcoming week when we talk about the story of Mephibosheth, when that would have been scandalous, really, to talk about that. But right now, we're definitely in an age where the holiness of God is not something that we talk about or think about very much. And that's to our detriment, because unless you understand the holiness of God, it's hard to understand why the gospel is such a big deal, why it's actually good news, and why it brings joy and freedom, right? But you may be able to resonate more deeply with the problem of beauty. So when I tell you this is a story about beauty, and it's really a story that deconstructs and reconstructs our idea of beauty, and that's a good thing. Because we also live in a day and age that has very oppressive, harmful, somewhat arbitrary ideas about beauty, and everybody recognizes it. Now, I think one of the most powerful, um, powerful you know, ways of getting at this, uh, I'm hoping maybe you guys have seen those Dove beauty commercials? Yeah, they were only a couple years ago. Powerful. I went and watched a bunch of them again today to remind myself about them. And you, just, like, you can't watch very many of those things without weeping. Um, one of the main ones, I was going to play it for you, but it's like seven minutes long. So I just didn't think I, I could. But I posted on the Belmont Aria Facebook group the link, and you should go watch this one. So one of the first experiments that Dove um, soap, it's Dove soap, right? So they do this experiment where they hire a guy who's an FBI-trained forensic sketch artist. So he's the person that when people describe uh, a perpetrator or a a suspect, just describe him, he can draw the sketch, right? He's been trained to do that. So they have these women come in, he's behind a screen so he can't see them, and they describe themselves to him while he sketches 
based on what they say they look like. And then he has somebody who's really not spent that much time with these women, but just spent some time getting to know them, and then they come in and they also describe the same woman who just described herself, but now these other people describe her and he sketches that. And the sketches are not the same. Then he brings in the original woman to look at the two sketches. And that's where, it, man, if you can watch that without weeping, um, then I don't know. I, I pray for you, I guess. Because, <laughs> because it's really heartbreaking. It's really heartbreaking to see how women describe themselves versus how other people see them. And it just highlights this issue. And it's not just a problem for women, it's a problem for men, too. The issue of beauty is oppressive in our culture. And I wish it was the Christians that were saying more about it, leading the charge against it. Unfortunately, it's not. But this is a passage that I think speaks powerfully about beauty, deconstructs and reconstructs and shows us how true beauty can be secured. Our hearts long for beauty. C.S. Lewis put it so well years ago. He said, we do not merely want to see beauty, though God knows even that is beauty enough. We want something else which we can hardly put into words to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. See, the problem is the culture teaches us, and within the church as well, really, really horrible ideas of beauty that are oppressive and harmful. But then, you know, what postmodernism says is, well, just deconstruct beauty. There is no, there is no standard of beauty. Um, it, everything is beautiful. Everything is ugly. Everything is just merely subjective. The problem with that is that your heart still resonates and longs for real beauty. So you can try to kind of trick your heart and say, well, beauty doesn't matter. It's all a, a pointless construct that's only oppressive. The problem is you're hardwired to resonate with beauty. In fact, I would say you were made to bask in the adoring gaze of another who finds you unspeakably beautiful. And you can't root that out of your heart. And you don't want to. As painful as it can be, you don't want to. That's what Lewis is trying to get at. So we can't get rid of our longing for beauty, but neither can we secure it for ourselves. Beauty fades. That's why our culture is so obsessed with youth and youth culture. But what does God have to say about this? Well, look at this story. It's in Zechariah chapter 3. Now, I actually forgot to pass this out. But I have, Delaney, you want to help me? Easton, you want to help me? So I have uh, probably 25 copies of the scripture. I'm using the NIV, so if you have a phone... Bible, and you want to look at the NIV translation, Zechariah, which is one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, chapter 3, and we're going to read the whole chapter. If you don't have a Bible on your phone, raise your hand, and they will give you one of these papers, because I definitely want you to be able to have the, this passage to look at. Zechariah chapter 3. 
Zechariah is, is a very interesting book. Zechariah is one of the minor prophets. Actually, he's not minor in the sense that it's unimportant or secondary scripture. Uh, as a matter of fact, in the Hebrew Bible, they're simply called the Twelve. They're not called minor. And minor means that they wrote less, right? But they're not minor in significance. Though Zechariah is interesting because Zechariah has a series of night visions where an angel, it's almost, I always wondered if Dickens like, got this idea of like, the ghosts you know, coming at night in the Christmas carol, because that's what Zechariah is like. You know, these, these angels will come at night and show him these visions. So this is one of the night visions that Zechariah got, and it's in chapter 3. Then he, that means the angel, showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand, the right side, to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among those standing here. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come, I am going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua, there are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Now, there's some weird stuff in that story, isn't there? It's a vision, right? And, uh, and there's some fascinating things in here. But here's what I want you to see. The, the story begins with a shocking scene. Now, it, it may not shock you because you're not an Old Testament priest. But Zechariah is not only a prophet, he's also a priest. So he knows all about um, offering sacrifices before the Lord in the temple. He knows what all is entailed in that. And particularly, he knows about the one time a year when the high priest would actually stand before God himself offering a sacrifice for the sins of Israel. This is what's called the Day of Atonement. And it was a really big deal, the Day of Atonement. That seems to be the scene here. When it says that Joshua the high priest is standing before the Lord... Well, that was in the Holy of Holies, and the high priest only once a year would actually go into this inner kind of sanctum, the Holy of Holies, 
in the temple. That's when it was said that he was standing before the Lord. And yet, as Joshua is standing before the Lord, he's wearing filthy clothes. Clothes covered in excrement. Now, you know, that's not how you do this. That's not how you're supposed to stand before the Lord. I was thinking the other day somebody was asking for prayer for a... um, for an interview, for an internship, which a lot of you guys do all the time, right? Or job interviews, you gotta find a summer job. And I'm thinking, you would never show up, you know, to a job interview with even like ripped jeans, right? Or a t-shirt, like I like to walk around all the time. My wife won't let me out of the house that way, and that's good. You would never do that. But imagine, imagine showing up, you know, with crap all over, smeared all over you, right? That's the picture here. And, and, John, and, and Zachariah must be like, whoa, what? This makes no sense at all. Not only does it make no sense, it's incredibly disturbing. Because if Joshua, the high priest, is standing before the Lord covered in excrement, if he's not pure and clean, then he can't offer a sacrifice for all of Israel. So it's a shocking scene. And he would have recognized it and been astounded. Not only that, who else is there? Satan. Satan. Now, I don't want to get so, you know, spend all our time talking about this. Come on, uh, on Thursday. You can ask questions about this if you want. But I will simply say this. I don't believe that you can fully explain all of the evil and brokenness in this world in simply human terms. I think what the Bible offers up in saying that there is a spiritual dimension to evil that's more than just mere human evil, I think makes a lot of sense when I look in the world. So I don't think it's just this kind of crazy old-fashioned idea. But generally, in the Bible, Satan is regarded as the accuser and the father of lies. But the thing is here, he is the accuser, but he has every right to accuse. He has every right to accuse because Joshua has no business standing before the Lord in such an offensive way. And so Satan is there accusing him, accusing him. But what happens? What happens? God not only silences the accusation, he takes away the basis for the accusation. This is such a beautiful picture of what happens in the gospel. God in the gospel, in the good news that Christians talk about all the time, the good news is not that God just changed his mind willy-nilly about people. God is not capricious. God is not bad-tempered. In the gospel, God does not just overlook sin, he deals with it. Just like in this passage, God doesn't just rebuke Satan, he takes away the basis of Satan's accusation. Now, to really understand like like this scene and what's going on here and why it's such a shocking scene to see Joshua the high priest covered in excrement, ministering before the the Lord on the Day of Atonement, it helps to know a little of the cultural background, a little of what went into 
this once a year ceremony called the Day of Atonement. So they would actually take turns. There was a whole group of priests and they would take turns. Each, each person would get one year where they were the high priest that year. And that went on even in the days of Jesus. You read about in the Gospels how you know, it was one guy's turn to be high priest that year. That was going on even back then. And so if you were going to be the high priest, now you offered, there were all kinds of sacrifices that were offered every day in the temple, okay? But the one that was the sin offering for all of Israel was what was called the Day of Atonement. And the high priest went through quite elaborate preparations for the Day of Atonement. For instance, he was isolated from his family for a whole week before the Day of Atonement. They actually had a special apartment in the temple where the high priest would stay the whole week before. Do you know why? Because if he did certain things that would make him unclean, like come in contact with a dead body, then he'd be unable to perform his duties. And it was vital that the Day of Atonement happened. God said, for you to be in my presence, there must be a covering over of your sin and guilt. And this symbolism is speaking to that. And it's important that this happens. So the high priest would spend a week separated from his family. The night before the Day of Atonement, he would pull an all-nighter, a prayer vigil. His fellow priests would gather around him, pray for him to encourage him, but he also would practice all of the rituals that he was going to undergo the next day because he needed to get it right. Needed to get it right. He would begin the cleansing rituals at sunrise. And what was fascinating, throughout the whole day, he would bathe in public behind a linen screen, but still in public five times. Again, over and over, the one who's going to go stand before the Lord is going to be cleansed. But it's not just important for him to be cleansed. It's important for all of God's people to know that the one who represents them is clean and pure. So he would bathe five times in public. He would wash his hands and feet at least ten times. And all of this in public so Israel would be sure that the one who would represent them was pure. And he wore special clothes. He wore special clothes on the Day of Atonement. Actually, the only day that he wore white clothes was on the Day of Atonement. The rest of the year, the priests wore brightly colored garments in Israel. Only on this day would he wear pure white linen robes. And that's why when Zechariah sees this vision, he's like, this is all wrong. He should be dressed in white, clean robes. And he should not be doing anything that would offend God and his holiness. But there's something even more shocking in this scene. And it's what God does. I mean, what God does with this one who stands before him covered in excrement. Like I said, he silences the accuser, Satan, by taking away the basis for his accusations. And it teaches us something important about grace. Grace is not God winking at sin, it's God dealing with sin and removing the basis of the condemnation. God stands against the accuser who's pointing out our filth, 
and takes away the sin symbolized by taking off the filthy clothes and putting on new garments. Think of it this way. Grace reclothes us. Grace gives you new clothes to wear. We'll talk about that more in a minute. The Lord also cares for burning sticks. Do you see that in verse 2? The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? A burning stick snatched from the fire is pretty vulnerable. Vulnerable. Weak. And the Lord cares for burning sticks snatched from the fire. The Lord chooses those who are out, who are without hope. A stick burning in the fire can't do anything to help itself. But the Lord chooses such burning sticks and cares for them, right? Grace not only reclothes us, grace reclaims us. He says to Satan, in effect, how dare you? These are my people. Do you believe that God says that over you? That he stands before those who would accuse you and says, how dare you? These are my people. I am the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem. I've chosen my people. They're like a burning stick. How dare you accuse? And the, the, God clothes them in rich garments. Now this is interesting. Put a white turban on his head. This is actually not something that the priest would wear. So now you go from priestly imagery to royal, kingly imagery. And you learn something that it's not just enough to be clean in God's sight. God actually doesn't just make us clean. He makes us his royal children. Kings and queens. You know, I love that in, um, in the Narnia tales, right? Where he's always talking about, you know, King Peter and you know, it's just this subtle reminder. Adam and Eve were royal servants of the king. And so were all those made in God's image. So he says, put a white turban on his head. It's a picture not just of being cleansed, but of being made royal. One of the Bible commentators says this, not only do the angels remove the soiled garments, they replace them with rich finery. The high priest who stood in abject shame now stands in splendor and beauty. In other words, God doesn't just cleanse your filth and give you a new opportunity to try to make yourself beautiful. He makes you beautiful in the gospel. He doesn't just take away your sinful clothes and say, okay, you screwed it up that time. I'm going to give you another opportunity to try to impress me. Let's see how you do this time. You know, Christians are always much, much more forgiving towards themselves about sins they committed before they were Christians. But when it comes to things that they've done since they became Christians, they always struggle with believing that God can forgive them for that because they feel like they should know better. Well, maybe you should. But you know what? God in the gospel is not just giving you a fresh opportunity to impress him. He reclothes you, not just with clean clothes, but with rich, royal garments. You're not just clean in his sight, 
You're beautiful in his sight. You see that? Right? And then he makes this astonishing promise. And this, to me, is my favorite part of this whole chapter, is verse 9. And this, again, would be, uh, sorry, verse 10. No, it's verse 9, yeah. Am I right? Yeah. I'm going to cleanse the land of its sin in a single day. Where's that one? Oh, yeah, that's the end of verse 9, yeah. I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Now, that is an astonishing promise. Do you know why? It doesn't ring so astonishing to us. But at this point, Israel has been doing sacrifices for thousands of years. Thousands of years, over and over and over again. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us built into the sacrificial system was this huge point that Israel seemed to miss. The huge point is this, it's not really working. It's not working. If the sacrificial system in the temple dealt with sin, you wouldn't have to do it over and over and over again. What the sacrificial system is doing, what the sacrificial system is doing is teaching you, number one, that sin is serious and it's killing you. And God is the only one who can provide a solution to where you will be able to come into his very presence boldly, as the writer to the Hebrew says. We can come boldly before the throne of grace because of what Jesus did. And that's what this is talking about. So Israel, you've been doing these sacrifices over and over and over again. The point is, it's not working. You need to look for one to come. And that's what God is saying here. I will cleanse the land of its sin in a single day. You've been doing sacrifices for thousands of years, two, three, four times a day. But I'm going to do something that will cleanse the land of its sin in a single day. I'm going to end the need for any more sacrifices. How could God make such a promise? Well, it's because of what this symbolizes. So Yeshua, Joshua, you know, that's the word Jesus. Like that was Jesus' name in Hebrew, Yeshua. It's like there are some places in the Old Testament that are kind of subtle or opaque. But this is like Jesus, the high priest, is standing before God covered in excrement. And what he does is going to cleanse the land of its sin in a single day. It doesn't get much clearer than that, does it? It doesn't get much clearer than that. The high priest Joshua is symbolic of the servant the branch who is to come, Jesus himself, who is the only high priest who ever dared stand before the Lord covered in excrement, yours and mine, was Jesus. And the Lord obliterated him. And it cleansed the land of its sin in a single day and secured for you and me royal beautiful clothes. You see, Jesus 
is the one who kept the Lord's commands, walked in his ways. He too had a final week of preparation. You know, it's fascinating how in all of the gospel accounts, fully a quarter of the book is devoted to the last week of Jesus' life, right? It's not, it's not like perfectly spaced out. You've got the whole book and a quarter of each of the gospels is dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. He too had a final week of preparation. He too had an all-night vigil, but he had no friends that stayed awake with him. Yet still, he went to the cross, even for people who couldn't even stay awake. You ever fall asleep trying to pray? Feel really bad about that? Like Jesus asked these friends to stay awake with him. He says, my soul is sorrowful to the point of death. Just stay awake with me. They couldn't do it. And still he went to the cross. Instead of being with him and encouraging him, they fell asleep and one of them betrayed him with a kiss. For him, it was not a night of encouragement. It was a night of being beaten. He wore special clothes too. Not white linen, but the mocking purple robe of a king. And he wore a special hat, if you could put it that way. But it was a crown of thorns. He had a public bath as well. He was spat upon. That was our high priest. That's an ugly picture. Or is it? It's an ugly picture. But it is the most beautiful picture. Because what the law couldn't do, after thousands of sacrifices, this filthy, broken one did in a single day. Again, the only high priest who ever stood before God covered in excrement. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin to become sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And guys, you need to understand, righteousness is different than forgiveness. And most Christians don't understand this. Most Christians think, oh, when I accept Jesus, I get forgiven. No, that's half the gospel. That's half the gospel. That's like if somebody said, and sometimes you hear this illustration, you know, that um, like there's a book and God writes down everything you ever did, everything you ever thought, and it's in this book. And when you become a Christian, you know, presto changeo, your, your book becomes wiped clean. But that's not actually what happens. That's only half of a gospel. In reality, Jesus also has a book. And in that book is everything that he ever did, everything he ever said, everything he ever wanted. And when you become a Christian, God switches the covers. You don't have a blank book. God sees the life of Jesus credited to your account. It's an accounting term, credited to your account. It means you get credit for something you didn't do. That's why we sing this hymn sometimes. Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. I don't know a, a, a better shorthand way to explain what the gospel is. Jesus lived and died in the place of sinners and took our sin, our excrement, our filth, and gives us credit for the life he lived. God destroyed him so that you could be clean and beautiful. His boldness to go to the cross, 
gives birth to your boldness. You can stand in his sight, clean and beautiful, because Jesus dared to stand in the presence of God, covered in filth. It's exactly what he did. It's not a pretty picture, but it's the most beautiful picture, right? We have to beware of romanticizing the cross. I remember when I was your age, running into a a book by this guy, A.W. Tozer, and he had an essay in that book called The Old Cross and the New Cross, and he had this point, I've never gotten this out of my head. He said, in our day, we wear crosses. Now, this is not to make you feel guilty if you're wearing a cross tonight. But he goes, in our day, we wear crosses, but in the Roman times, crosses wore men. And wearing a cross is like wearing an execution or, you know, like a, you know, a guillotine around your neck or an electric chair, right? Sometimes we can lose sight of the ugliness of the cross. It's an ugly thing, right? I remember years ago, you know, there was that... Um, that artist, Serrano, Serrano, I'm not sure how you say it, Piss Christ, do you remember this? Right, with the cross upside down in a jar of urine. You remember how all the Christians were offended about it? They were, and they wanted to defund the NAE, you know, the National Endowment for the Arts, because they'd funded it. I don't know, guys. <laughs> it seems that that's a pretty, pretty, a, a better understanding of what the cross is actually about than what most Christians think. It's an ugly thing. It's an ugly thing but it becomes the most beautiful thing. I mean, do you remember Slumdog Millionaire? You, you guys seen that movie? Where the kid like literally goes through the out, out of the outhouse, goes through the crap to get an autograph? What do you think of a savior who took your filth to make you clean and spotless and beautiful in the sight of God? That's the savior we have. And that's what brings real security and flourishing. There's a couple more images here I wanna point out. The stone, the stone is weird. And actually the stone shows up in Revelation, which might make sense because you're reading this, you're like, that sounds like some weird thing out of Revelation. You got this stone and it's got seven eyes and what in the world is that talking about? Well, I don't have time to go through all of it, but the stone is the stone set in the plaque that's set in the priest's turban. And the eyes represent God looking at the stone and the engraved inscription, this imagery is picked up in the book of Revelation. And there we find it's Christ's name that will be written on our foreheads. The symbol of taking on his image is this, his beauty for our own. That's the image, but it's a stone. It's a solid, secure image. It's the idea that you have this beauty that's inscribed on a stone that can't be taken away, the image of Christ, because it's the name of Christ. And you know where else the Bible talks about that? One of my favorite passages, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. It says that we have an inheritance kept in heaven for us where it'll never rot or fade, perish or fade. We have an inheritance kept in heaven, I like to think of it this way, a righteousness, this beauty that Christ has secured for you is kept in heaven where you can't get at it to screw it up. God does not look at you day by day and say, well, they did pretty good today and not so good today, and and his view of you goes up and down depending on whether you're having a good day or a bad day, whether you're prayed up or not. That's not important, but God doesn't base his opinion about you on any of that. It's based on the righteousness that Christ has earned, and that's kept in heaven where you can't get at it. And it'll never perish, 
spoil, or fade. That's the image here of the stone with the inscription. It's secure, it's solid, it can't be messed up. Even when you sin, it doesn't change God's opinion about you. Because what he thinks about you has been secured by the life and death of Christ. And Christ's life and his death have already happened. You can't undo what Jesus did. God has already said what Jesus did was fully satisfying because Jesus is not still in the grave. He's risen. And that means he did everything that was required to earn the smile of God. It's done. It's finished. Jesus said as much. It is finished, and he meant it. So the, the beauty has been secured. And then there's this sitting under the fine and fig tree in that day. And what is that talking about? Well, it's an image of flourishing. Because this beauty is not just a beauty for you as an individual. It's a beauty that will begin with his church, and his church will bring it to the whole of creation. Because God cares about more than just disembodied souls. He cares about everything he's made and restoring the shalom, the peace, the beauty. That's what he's going to do. The restored beauty is not just for our personal consumption. It's for sharing to God's glory. And it's how we should treat restored beauty now wherever we see it. You see, we can never get rid of our longing for beauty. It's what we were made for. It's what God is committed to giving us in Jesus, the one who secured a glorious future for his children. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in his essay called The Weight of Glory. If we take the image of Scripture seriously, if we believe that God will one day give us the morning star and cause us to put on the splendor of the sun, then we may surmise that both the ancient myths and the modern poetry, so false as history, may be very near the truth as prophecy. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and the purity of mourning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors that we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. This is the only thing that can bring real freedom and true rest. Again, to be righteous in God's sight is to be beautiful because you've done everything that he requires from the heart. And while you haven't done that, Jesus did. And when you put your hope and your trust in him, you get credit for that. When our beauty has been secured by Jesus, it sets us free to rest, but also to work, to bring beauty all over the place. You know why? Because you no longer have to compete with everybody else to try and make yourself seem beautiful. You no longer have to try and trounce everybody else to make them ugly so that you seem beautiful in comparison. You actually can rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep and seek beauty. That's what the church should be a community working to bring beauty out of the brokenness and share it because we have a beauty that cannot be lost. It's a beautiful picture. It's an ugly picture, but it's a beautiful picture. And it's all true. It's all true. It's better than you could hope for, and it's all true.
the Lord Jesus dealt with sin in a single day and secured beauty forever. Let's pray together.